then you go downtown where the folks are broke. You go downtown where your life's a joke. You go downtown where you buy a toe. Can you go home to Skid Row? Home to Skid Row. Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this week we have a special guest, writer and podcaster Andrew Carden of the excellent film website The Awards Connection is joining us today and he's been a big supporter of this podcast from the very beginning so we're we're really psyched that he's finally on the show. Uh, Andrew, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honoured to be here. Uh, I've been a fan for, for a long time. Yours is one of my, my favourite podcasts, uh, especially, you know, on the Oscars. I love hearing you guys go back and revisiting all these old and, and often kind of obscure categories. So uh, I'm, I'm delighted to join you because that's, of course, right up my alley as well. Well, thank you. And um, we have a new category this week, thanks to you. This is uh, we're going to be talking about the 1986 nominees for Best Visual Effects. Why did you choose this category and when did your love affair with the Oscars begin? So I, I have to admit, I had about... 30 different categories on my short list that I uh, was considering uh, for you for this uh, occasion. Uh, I have to say, <laughs> if I was going to do any acting category, it was actually going to be uh, 1982 Best Supporting Actress, for what it's worth. But, mm. you know, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit more obscure, like more of a deep dive, something especially a category that you guys haven't yet tackled. And I remember I once had this conversation with my brother, who is also a huge uh, awards nut. And we were talking about uh, horror um, films at the Oscars. And I think we concluded that really the only category that's been completely dominated by this genre which is generally not very embraced by the Academy, um, was this 1986 special visual effects. Um, and I'm just as much as I am an Oscar nut, I am so much a horror nut as well. I love horror films, especially uh, 70s and 80s. I love slasher films. I love um, supernatural ones, which is very much, you know, in the wheelhouse with this category. So this is, you know, right up my alley. Uh, and in terms of my love affair with the Oscars, I think that my earliest Oscar memory was the 1996 Oscars. And that's because I can vividly recall watching the Cuba Gooding Jr. win in real time. I, I remember that. But in terms of when I first really started to closely follow it all, it wasn't until the 2002 race, uh, so the Chicago year, when I started doing predictions. I had my family fill out ballots and and all that stuff. And um, I started reading up on, you know, Hollywood Reporter and Variety. You know, I had always loved cinema and I also love statistics and I love awards races in general, just the idea, the competition, the, the search for, you know, what's best. Um, so all of that led to me really just falling in love with the Oscars and especially Oscar history. I love older films, so I love to dive back into the older races. And then 
um, it was a few years ago. It was honestly around the time of uh, our election in the U.S. with, with Trump and, and all that. And I was just so miserable. And I, I work in politics um, myself. And I just needed some sort of escape. And I hadn't ever done any professional writing around Oscars or cinema or anything like that. But I decided, you know, what the hell, I'm going to start some sort of blog. And I'm going to write about the Oscars, probably old vintage Oscar stuff. And ultimately, you know, I opened up a Twitter account and I, I did things like I went back and I reviewed all the best original song nominees and doing something like that kind of uh, got me connected with the right people on Twitter, people who uh, share my love for obscure things like that. And you know, from there, I became a writer over at Gold Derby. Uh, I'm writing now over at Awards Watch. You know, I've had the opportunity to even go on uh, NPR and talk about the Oscars. You know, it's been, I, I never expected, you know, to be connected with so many fellow Oscar lovers like this. You know, my, my friends growing up were certainly not into the Oscars or anything, but, you know, getting engaged with this community on social media, on all these different websites has just been awesome. And I've loved doing different series on my blog and of course, contributing to, to Gold Derby Awards Watch and you know doing all these great podcasts. And I'm, that's why I'm so thrilled to be able to join you two today because I love you know everything you guys do. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for choosing like such a horror heavy lineup as well. Like we doing this we don't have much of an opportunity to talk about genre films as you know because the academy kind of hate them generally um but this year we've got uh the nominees this year we've got little shop of horrors poltergeist to the other side and aliens and we're going to start with little shop of horrors um how did everyone feel about this movie um i had been looking forward to seeing it because I was I'm a big fan of the original the Roger Corman version from 1960 I had no idea that it went through a stage adaptation en route to becoming this musical so that was interesting to discover and I kind of I kind of love this film um how corny and ridiculous and perfect it was um in its just embrace of the silliness of its genre, despite some very dark elements to it and some maybe problematic elements to it when viewed from today. Um, I still think that it's fantastic as a musical and as a kind of send up of the monster genre in general. Yeah, I, I, I share your your affection for this uh, i you know as much as i love horror and you know movies in general i especially love a good movie musical and well I, I actually i haven't seen a professional production of a little shop like an, a broadway production or anything like that i have actually oddly enough seen a middle school production <laughs> which was adorable of this <laughs> uh, but i think it is a fabulous adaptation of a really terrific musical i think that's Frank Oz is the perfect director for this, given his background um, in, in you know, doing things with puppets and, and all that good stuff. I think that he stages everything beautifully. I love that they kept Ellen Green 
from the original Sage production for the film because I think she is the ultimate uh, Audrey. And I just think it's it's an all-around sparkling, delightful, funny, sometimes genuinely kind of scary adaptation. Uh, great music. I, I love the, the uh, Howard Ashman, Alan Menken score. And again, I think that Frank Oz just does a, a marvelous job orchestrating the whole thing. You know, I, I've seen the, uh, the original Corman uh, film as well, and I really love that too. You know, this is obviously a very different beast, but I think it's a very satisfying production and I think manages to, to outdo the original uh, Corman film in pretty much every area, much as I love that, that Corman film too. So, you know, I, I adore this as a horror movie, as a comedy, as a musical. I think it's pretty much all around successful, although as we can talk a little bit later, I think Little Shop um, falters a little bit in the final act, but that pretty much is my only qualm about it. Otherwise, I really, really love it. Yeah. I think, I mean, even with the dark themes, I kind of was unprepared for how joyous the experience of watching it was going to be like as soon as the um the skid row song came on at the beginning i thought okay here we go this is good this is really good music um i think it's interesting that the they did change the ending to this movie um they showed it to a test audience and they really really hated it like the ending and it you know left a sour note they even showed it to another test audience as well i think um so they do alter that for a happy ending in which Seymour and Audrey survived. Did did anyone think that was a good decision? Well, you know, I, I think that the original ending makes more sense. And I think that on stage, the original ending um, is more satisfying. But I don't know if you've actually gone and watched the original ending to this, which is easily available on YouTube. It's, I think, included in like the most recent collector's edition of the film, too. But I think that the, the original ending, as filmed, is a little bit too much of a special effects extravaganza. I think it's, it's clearly done. It's just, it's almost, it's overwhelming in a way that just isn't in keeping with the rest of the film it's it's hard to explain it's just it's too much i think and i think that the special effects in the version that ultimately went to theaters are ultimately more satisfying and effective than in the original director's cut which i think it's just too much, you know, the big Audrey just like barnstorming the streets, kind of like the Safe Bar from Marshmallow Man and uh, Ghostbusters and just like taking over the world. Oddly enough, I just I don't think that it quite works on the screen as it does on the stage. So, well, I don't entirely love the new happy ending either. I think it's still a little bit better than what was filmed by Frank Oz initially. And, you know, I mean, ultimately Warner Brothers burns like $5 million on that finale. It was so expensive. And ultimately this thing ended up turning into the most expensive production that Warner Brothers had ever done. And in the end, I think they actually lost money on Little Shop, despite, you know, the praise that it, it received uh, from critics. You know, I think that 
ultimately, if, if it falters anywhere, it's in the end. But I think that it would have faltered even more had they kept that original 10-minute ending on. Because I just, I don't think it works. It, it leaves me pretty cold. The, the visual effects are a really mixed bag. I think that the sight of um, Audrey kind of hugging the Statue of Liberty and, and the final shot sounds better on paper than it plays on the screen. So I think that they made the right call in, in making it a happy ending. But even so, it just feels a little too easy. It's a little too abrupt. So I, I can't give this film like an A plus in the end. For me, it's ultimately just kind of like an A. But again, it's like a small qualm. Um, but still, I think that if I think the most problematic part of Little Shop is really in how it wraps up in the end. Um, I will half agree. I definitely agree with you that it goes on too long. Um, and that the shots of Audrey too kind of yeah, lumbering down the street were the weakest parts. And definitely, you know, nods to Ghostbusters there and you know, you can appreciate wanting to do that in 1986 but yeah if it had just been the bursting out of the walls and the people screaming and all that I think I would have liked it much better and if it was about half as long um I'm a sucker for a downbeat ending um especially one with a rock music background to kind of belie the fact that humanity is being eaten alive so I liked the original ending and I would stick with it just with better editing, I think. And yeah, lose the Statue of Liberty shot as well. I, I could have lived without that. Yeah. It's very frantic, isn't it, at the end? Like, but this is all tabletop uh, effects, isn't it? It's done like it's done in miniature and then shot as if it's Audrey's really big, um, which is probably quite good for the time, but it does feel very rough around the edges. But I did like the puppetry element of Audrey 2 and everything involving Audrey 2 looked good for the time, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it looked great for uh, for what it... I mean, it looked perfectly in place for the type of movie that it is, a kind of wacky musical. You'd expect wacky, not entirely realistic uh, puppet effects, and I think it, it blended very well with the story. Yeah, I think all the, the the puppetry stuff with Audrey too is is really quite phenomenal. You know, I, I she, she's or or he, you know, Audrey too. <laughs> Audrey too is just adorable when when little, and then you know by the time Audrey too becomes just you know ginormous, it it really is quite a daunting and kind of scary sight. You know, I think that. If anything in the, the re-edited cut doesn't work, it's actually the new ending that they filmed in which basically Audrey 2 gets electrocuted to death. <laughs> um, it's kind of it's using some of that kind of um, Ghostbusteries kind of lasery um, visual effects. And it just feels a little bit cheaper than the effort that they put in with all the puppetry. Um, but yeah, I think all of the work with Audrey too, just that the evolution of the plants, you know, over time is, is really quite convincing and goes from endearing and cute uh, to something really quite overwhelming and, and really, you know, intimidating. So I, I think they really did a fabulous job with, with all of the, the uh, design on this. Um, 
So yeah, and you know, I think that's for this film, it's absolutely critical that Audrey too is is convincing and intimidating. You know, had they failed on that end, this of course wouldn't work at all. But thankfully you have a visual effects team that has background in puppetry. And then you have Frank Oz, who's of course a master at shooting this stuff. So um yeah, I mean hats off to the whole, you know, puppetry and visual effects team on this. Um, because it's pretty pitch perfect besides when they get a little CGI E toward the end. Absolutely. And then of course you've got Levi Stubbs voicing Audrey too. Um and the, the nominated song Mean Green, Mother from Outer Space, which is just really, really good. Um we did put a poll up on Twitter for what people thought should have won that category that year. And I think um, Berlin's Take My Breath Away comfortably came out the winner, as it did win the Oscar. Um, but how would how would you guys have voted in that race? Well, as, as I said on Twitter, I'm actually fond of uh, the Karate Kid Part 2 <laughs> theme, uh, The Glory of Love, which I think is just a... just It's just like the quintessential 80s adult contemporary... Um, which I have a soft spot for. I mean, it would make so many people queasy, but I think it's just perfect for that film. And, um, you know, for me, I, I actually don't care for Take My Breath Away. I actually really despise Top Gun. I think it's a, a dreadful film and I can't believe they're doing a sequel. <laughs> so I definitely can't get behind that. Um, you know, in terms of Mean Green Mother, uh, I like it. But I don't think it's quite on the same level as, say, Skid Row or somewhere that's green or even I'll be I'll be a dentist. You, you'll be a dentist. Um, I think it's fun. And I love the Oscar performance um, that they did for it. But I think my heart's ultimately with um, Glory of Love. I actually have never seen Top Gun. Um, I've, I've heard Take My Breath Away. Um, and I'm also not a huge fan of it. I haven't seen an American tale in forever, but I have fond memories of it. So maybe I would have voted for somewhere out there just because it's involved in a film that I liked. Am I the only one that loves an 80s power ballad? <laughs> no, I like a good 80s power ballad. Uh, a good 80s power ballad. <laughs> I just don't like this particular one. See, I think that, that's, that song is just so closely associated for me with the film that I just can't go for it. Um, and I, I can't say that I can even recall what the, um, the That's Life song sounds like. I have seen that film, and I know it's a Henry Mancini composition, but some of the stuff that Mancini was doing with the Blake Edwards films in like the 70s and 80s was pretty cheesy and not particularly memorable. So I suspect it's probably on that same level. I think, I don't remember the song that uh, Audrey sings, but they, my favorite lyric of the entire movie was... I know Seymour's the greatest, but I'm dating a semi-sadist. Mm. I just thought that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great line. But Steve Martin, um, as the dentist, is just having an absolute blast in this movie. And I love the scene with him and Bill Murray, like uh, as the guy with the pain fetish. I just thought that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And a role that was Jack Nicholson, of course, in the original. yeah. Um, I'm I'm really glad that they decided to bring this little uh, scene back because I, I think it was not part of the stage play, but um, they put it back in just to uh, pay additional homage to the original. And of course, Jack Nicholson in his 
in the original is just so fantastic and um, amazing. Of course, Bill Murray really makes it his own here, um, makes it a little more sexual, I think, than Jack Nicholson did. Um, and it's it's great. Actually, the as much as I love Steve Martin and as, lo- as much fun as he has with it, his aspect of the film was the part that kept this from being a great a perfect film for me just because you know it's it's hard to make light of domestic abuse and have it really be funny and it's not like he's all talk either because we see the evidence that he truly does uh beat audrey and it's kind of i i i mean i kind of rolled with it and just when he died that's obviously great but it it didn't it didn't really work for me, that aspect. I really wish they would have toned that down a little bit. Well, it is interesting to think, you know, what what if they just had, you know, um, a dramatic straight actor play that role and he just plays it as sadistic and not as some kind of, you know, Steve Martin, SNL kind of character. You know, I think you'd have a much darker, you know, experience, a much darker subplot there. As it is, I think that it's kind of tonally kind of haphazard because Steve Martin is playing it as kind of, you know, an over-the-top SNL, you know, kind of a wild and crazy guy kind of character, which given, you know, all the violence that he inflicts on Audrey is just kind of uneasy. You know, had you had it be just some more straight character, somebody, you know, even just scarier, I think that may have been interesting and maybe not as tonally odd. You know, I mean, tonally, the film is really all over the place. And it's kind of a miracle that this thing works because, I mean, you have romance, drama, horror, comedy, musical. I mean, this is a film that really encompasses all the genres. So for it to walk that fine line and succeed in the fashion it does is kind of a miracle. Um, I would just give a nod to uh, the amazing girl group that wanders their way through the film, Crystal, Rondette, and Chiffon, who, you know, have big, booming, amazing voices and, you know, move the proceedings along in a way that I think, you know, really helps. And they're just irresistible. So next we've got Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Um, Poltergeist 2 plagued by a curse, uh, which saw four of its cast members die during filming. Um, in within the three films in the series, uh, included Dominique Dunn, who was murdered by her boyfriend shortly after the first movie, and then Julian Beck, who plays the villain in, in Poltergeist 2 that we're going to talk about today, died of stomach cancer, aged just 53, while filming this. Um, and all of this is attributed to the fact that they used skeletons in the original, original actual skeletons and not props. Well, we should probably note that Will Sampson, who uh, plays Taylor in this, died, I think, just a couple years after this film. And that, of course, Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann, died in production on Poltergeist 3. So, I mean, I mean, I don't think you can really deny that this thing is, is a cursed franchise and had to be ended and probably should have stopped after the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed on that. Um Maybe the universe was trying to tell them, hey, yeah, you don't need to keep making these, um, but they weren't getting the hint. I'm sometimes a fan of horror movies that are so bad they're good because they become comedic. Um, 
but Poltergeist 2 didn't quite rise to that for me. Uh, it just kind of remained mediocre um, and kind of pointless. And as far as the visual effects go, there didn't seem to be a huge step up from the original. So I, I wasn't sure, um, you know, what why it got this nomination at all, to be honest. Yeah, so, you know, for me, I mean, again, I, I love, you know, I, I, I eat up most of 80s horror um even the the shittiest ones you know i i've grown up on it and i grew up on this franchise so um, i this definitely has a, a special place in my heart um that being said the film is a mess um you know it's a film that um costs twice the size it's cost twice the budget of the first one if i'm not mistaken and yet somehow i think it feels smaller and cheaper than the original. I'm not sure where those funds uh, ultimately went. Um, that all being said, I, I do think there is some truly great stuff in this. And I think perhaps the the most you know prominent great thing in it is is Julian Beck, who I think gives a, a genuinely unsettling and terrifying and all around convincing performance um, as the, the Reverend character um, came in this. I think that he is actually more intimidating and, and frightening than the crazy special effects extravaganza of the first, which is really impressive in its own right. And I think that they did a, a phenomenal job staging the original obviously spielberg was on the set to help and toby Hooper had done texas chainsaw so he was a master at you know putting things together too and i think their collaboration also made poltergeist one such a sensation you know here you're working with the same screenwriters as the first one sans spielberg so he's not there contributing in any way so they're really the only carry carryovers besides the cast um, but back to Julian Beck, uh, again, I, I think he is genuinely terrifying in this. I think that the sight of him just walking through the rain, um, approaching their home and then trying to, you know, basically force his way in is truly scary stuff. And I think he does a, a phenomenal job. And I think Will Sampson as, as Taylor is quite good as well. But beyond that, it, it's definitely pretty low rent stuff um an unnecessary derivative sequel that really doesn't match the original in terms of visual effects in terms of the performances um i love zelda rubenstein uh, in the original yes pretty waste pretty <laughs> underutilized here doesn't really get a whole lot to do she actually gets more to do oddly enough in poltergeist 3 which is even messier <laughs> than this one so, um, you know, in the end, uh, there are things that I do genuinely like in this. It's a film that I like to revisit in the same way that I like to revisit um, many horror sequels of this era. But is it a great film? No. And the original, I do think, is a genuinely great film. Yeah, Julian Beck is good. He's, he's sort of like a demented, uh, craggier version of Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. Like, he's got that, mm. that same outfit. Um but he's like he's exactly what you'd want from a villain: crazy eyes, you know, creepy delivery. Um, 
So that all works for me. And I have to echo the Zelda Rubenstein love from the first film. I thought she was amazing in the first film. Um, she's got this monologue and she just delivers it with this sort of hilarious sincerity and she kind of whispers out every line and, you know, everything that comes out of this strange little woman's mouth is just, like, absurdly entertaining. Like, you can't take your eyes off her. Um, but in this one, she doesn't get as much to do and the movie was edited down from 130 minutes to 90 minutes. And I think Zelda was particularly furious about that because they cut most of her scenes. So that's why she doesn't have as much of an impact in this one as in the original. Yeah, no, she, she, you know, if, if you really love Tangina and Zelda, I don't know if you've seen Poltergeist 3, but she actually has the most to do in Poltergeist 3. I mean, it's not a good film in the slightest. It's really kind of a, a travesty. And it has an ending that they had to shoot um, following Heather O'Rourke's death with a body double, which is just, it's ultimately kind of offensive the way that they handle it. But if, if you just want to watch, you know, Zelda Rubenstein, choose scenery, deliver one-liners, and just have a ball, Poltergeist 3, you know, is kind of an entertaining time. <laughs> yeah, but she got Razzie nominations for 2 and 3, um, which is unkind. Well, that's bullshit. Exactly. Fuck the Razzies. Indeed. <laughs> but um, we've even, like, so we've got um, Beatrice Strait in the original, and in the sequel, Geraldine Fitzgerald turned up, and I was like, oh, wow, you know? Um, and then they kill her off. I mean, if you're going to have Geraldine Fitzgerald in your movie, at least use her. Um, but I think, like, one thing I did think was continual letdown in the whole series was that there's this problem where the script is just born lazy, to be honest. Like, for instance, when they go and hire uh, Beatrice Strait's character to, you know, uh, remove the poltergeist from the house in the original, she just turns up. Like, there's no scene of them calling her up or anything. And then in this one, when Geraldine Fitzgerald dies... She doesn't even get a funeral. Like, I just, I feel like um, it wouldn't eat into too much of the film's time if they just added a one-minute scene to draw a line under that character. It just feels like little things like that bothered me where the film just didn't care enough to link its story beats together properly. It just all felt a bit, okay, this is happening now, then this is happening. There was not really time to breathe. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think all the, the Geraldine Fitzgerald stuff in this is, is pretty cheesy as hell. <laughs> um, her scenes, her, her dialogue's pretty pretty dreadful. So it is, it's an unfortunate waste. Um, I, I do actually quite like Beatrice Strait in the first one, but I think the moment that Zelda Rubinstein comes into that, Beatrice is kind of shoved off to the sidelines, which is fine because Zelda's awesome. Um <laughs> But I think that I, th I my feeling is, is that they brought Beatrice straight on and thought that, oh, yeah, this amazing Oscar winner, you know, she'll probably have, you know, a scene stealing supporting role. And then Zelda came on and they were like, oh, this is actually going to be the great supporting turn of this. And then they kind of shoved Beatrice to the side. <laughs> so what about the visual effects in, in this film? Is It seemed to me, I'm sorry, but I, like I said uh, when we started, it seemed to me a huge step down 
uh, in terms of quality. Like, they relied on the same kind of stuff, like the, ooh, smoke and lights, and a few kind of fake-looking uh, monster prosthetics and things running around. Um, but ultimately, it didn't really create as much of a visual impact on me as the original did. And maybe it's because the original was working with a smaller budget, so they had to kind of be a little more clever. And here, it was just like, oh, we've got we've got all these millions, let's make a monster, which is never as scary as just the monster you're imagining. Yeah, I mean, they have a pretty incredible team on this. They had pretty much, you know, the team from Ghostbusters work on this, and they had folks from Star Wars, and a lot of the team from the original Poltergeist worked on this, so it's kind of curious that it is does feel like a downgrade. Uh, I do think there are some pretty cool scenes. I think that the scene where the sun gets attacked by his braces is pretty <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> um, I wish that that went on a little bit longer because it's a little fleeting, but I think that that's pretty clever. Um, I like when they're trying to escape from the home and the chainsaw is going after the car and everything in the garage is basically going after them. Uh, and I actually, even though I don't think it's entirely successful, I am kind of fond of uh, when Craig T. Nelson vomits the creature. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's uh, pretty insane. Um, and I just love the, the creature, you know, looks into the camera and does his little grin and then just kind of scurries away. I think that's fun. But I, I think that a lot of just the lasers and the clouds and, and all that's a little uh, familiar. And um, I mean, they have some some stuff where like, you know, some corpses pop out of the closet and there's a, a retread of the scene in the first one where Dope with Williams um has a nightmare in which he's being pulled into the ground by zombies. And that's fine, but they did that in the first pretty much. Um, you know, I, I think there's some some decent stuff in this. Um, I'm not entirely opposed to the nomination. I think it's kind of hilarious that Poltergeist 2 is an Oscar nominee, so I kind of <laughs> find that nifty. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this film is a downgrade from the first on every single level, although... Again, I think that Julian Beck does make this worthwhile. I think it's a, a genuinely fantastic and scary performance. And for him alone, you know, it's this is a film that I don't mind revisiting. Yeah, I agree that he's the main reason to watch the film. But the the scene where the creatures vomited up, I was reading that the, the creature was played by a guy, an amputee, who had no arms or legs. Um in a in a costume, um, which is interesting. Um, but the effects are decent. I think everything where somebody was sucked into thin air was good. And um, there's this quite beautiful shot of Caroline at the end, sort of floating into the light and floating back, which I I thought was done really well. Um, but to be negative, I think I think even within the same scene, you've got like a green screen of the sky behind them and it just looks fake you know um i th i would have thought in 1986 they'd be able to to come up with better green screen than that i personally think the entire ending is a total disaster um my understanding <laughs> is that um the suit the i guess the visual effects supervisor 
um, for some reason, he wasn't able to be on set during that. I don't know if something happened, but he basically just like left it up to his, his crew to film that entire scene. And I mean, that scene is going to be so tricky to nail in 1986 regardless, but I think they do a, a really kind of embarrassing job. Um, I think it's a poorly orchestrated ending, poorly written, and visually, I think it's just kind of hideous. Um, and I think, again, the sight of Geraldine Fitzgerald coming back, I guess, from heaven <laughs> to, to bring Carol Ann back is just so nauseatingly corny. Um, the, the Again, like the only stuff that I really like in this is when it actually, you know, is trying to be scary and not cheesy. And anytime that that Beck is on the screen. Anything more on Poltergeist 2? Uh, just to wonder why uh, Craig T. Nelson's character, when he became such a racist, like he wasn't bad in the first one, but then in the second one, <laughs> when he's outside, um, when um, Will Sampson Taylor is outside and he says, yeah, it's, it's not that I have anything against these people. And I thought, oh, he's he's talking about psychics, you know, me, people who claim to be mediums. Some of my best friends are Indians, and I think I have some in me. I read, I'm like, oh my god, you meant Native Americans, you bastard? What the hell? <laughs> Where did that come from? I mean, I knew he was a goofball, and I was fine with that, but why did he have to be a racist goofball, too? <laughs> I will say I do love uh, Joe Beth Williams' hair in this. It's just so big and, and frizzy and 80s. Um, I love it. Okay, um, so these films we've discussed so far, they don't matter because they lost um, to Aliens. And Aliens was filmed at Pinewood Studios in London. And I think the production was very much sort of James Cameron versus the crew. And they thought he was inexperienced and... He didn't understand British customs, like having a tea break during the filming, that that very British custom of the tea break. Um, but so I think they resented him and didn't take him seriously. And a couple of them were even fired. Um, but I think James Cameron obviously now no longer needs to prove himself, um, having made some, some great movies since then. But it's interesting to look back at a time when he didn't command the kind of respect he does now and how wrong the crew were looking back on this to doubt him because like Aliens is to me such an accomplished action film. Oh, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, completely different from the first, of course, you know, in terms of tone and, and atmosphere. And I think I still do prefer um, the first Alien. But yeah, I, I think that James Cameron really orchestrates this thing as the most intense of thrill rides it really it feels like a roller coaster ride this whole thing you know you get it builds slowly but once it, it takes off it's pretty much non-stop and you know i think that's well you know his work on the first terminator which was before this is, is very impressive i think that this you know show that he could take it to a completely different level and any doubts anybody had around James Cameron, you know, this cocky young filmmaker, um, were certainly addressed by this. Um, it is a marvelously orchestrated film. You know, um, it, it's like the ultimate summer blockbuster. 
And I know this really wasn't seen as a film that was on the verge of being that huge a blockbuster. I know that Fox, um, which I believe um, distributed the film, had their doubts. I think there were suspicions that something like Poltergeist 2 would actually be more uh, bankable, given how the first one had done. And I don't know if Alien was as highly regarded in 1986 by the general public, you know, as it is today. So you can see why there were doubts, but Cameron just did such a knockout job and he captured an extraordinary performance from Sigourney Weaver. And he has one hell of an ensemble all around. Visually, it's spectacular. It's paced incredibly has some fun one-liners in there. So the screenplay is pretty fantastic. You know, I think it's it's all around, you know, one of the great, you know, sci-fi blockbusters. I think it works on just about every level. I would agree that it's an amazing uh, action film, though I do prefer the original one because I just, in general, prefer the kind of moodiness and atmospheric horror of it and this one is more just yeah straight up sci-fi action although watching it again i did realize that it had more of the kind of atmospheric interludes than i'd remembered from watching it years ago um they still aren't quite evoking the original alien for me i think the way cameron films it and lights it and edits it and everything else is much different from the way uh, Scott did the original, so it doesn't quite have the same impact, but I was impressed by the amount of downtime there was, which I hadn't remembered from from my original viewing of it, so uh, that was a pleasant surprise. And, it's a, and I'm amazed that it took seven years between the original film and this one, because I think Alien was a pretty sizable hit, in 1979 so you would have thought they'd have gotten a sequel to it um much sooner but i guess the scale and the um the kind of ambition of this one must have must have taken a while to realize yeah it took a while for them to get to the sequel uh i think ridley scott has said he wasn't offered the opportunity to direct the sequel uh but it would have been interesting to see what he would have come up with because this is a very different film. Um, and also, I think David Fincher, didn't he do Alien 3? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's three big directors, um, very famous directors still working, um, having directed that franchise. But um, it is it is very action-oriented, where the original is just sort of out-and-out horror. Um, I think I prefer Aliens, to be honest, but I think they're both amazing films in their own right. Um, I the only issue I've got with the movie is that the, the portrayal of the soldiers and I do think it's sort of a situation where you're just kind of waiting for them to die <laughs> they're just sort of portrayed as such morons um, and it's not just the men like it's not even a feminist issue because the woman's portrayed as a moron as well Um. I just thought, like, maybe would it have hurt for her to have at least one ally that's capable of making decisions that aren't, isn't risking the life of everybody? Um, but but I, I guess it very much sort of pits Ripley as this one woman raging against the rest of the world kind of kind of dynamic. 
Well, I mean, in any action film like this, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of James Cameron as a writer. I think he's an amazing director, and I think he's got a handle on that aspect of it, but his writing never impresses me. And any action film like this kind of needs a lot of meat bags to just throw at the monster and get slaughtered. Um, and so it kind of makes sense that they're going to be a little douchey um, and kind of fitting the stereotype that I think a lot of people have of of soldiers and Marines in particular, that they're just kind of, uh, you know, kind of brainless gung-ho, go in, kick ass, uh, solve every problem with a grenade launcher kind of people, which I'm sure is not true. Um, but in order to move the plot forward, you need bodies, right? You need death. So, um, yeah, he's just going to throw these poor soldiers into the meat grinder. And if they can deliver great one-liners like game over, man, they survive a little longer. Um, and if they don't have a great deal of lines early on, then yeah, they're the first ones to go. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he tries to set up Hicks. Uh, played by Michael Bean as kind of the the most serious um, supporting character, the one who could, you know, go all the way with Ripley. Um, I think ultimately Michael Bean, though, isn't necessarily the most exciting of actors. And I think he's a little bit flat compared to the rest of the cast, like Bill Paxton or Jeanette Goldstein, who plays Vasquez. So I think he unfortunately kind of ends up fading into the background a bit, as opposed to being kind of the the central male figure that you can take seriously. I, I mean, I just think that I just I just picture James Cameron writing this and just having a blast pumping out all these one-liners for all of these characters. Um, there really isn't that much suspense as to you know who's going to make it. It's pretty clear that they're all just kind of going to drop like flies, and that this inevitably is just going to become you know mano a mano between Ripley and the Queen. Um, but even so, I think it is it's fun ensemble work. Um, I think that I mean none of the performances are like ex exactly you know Oscar caliber besides Weaver. But I think they're doing fun work. I think you can tell everybody had a good time filming this. Um, and I think they're they're pretty convincing, you know. Um, you know, they, they look and feel like they could be Marines. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's fun ensemble work, even if the characters aren't necessarily, you know, the most uh, well-crafted. Yeah, I thought Paxton was good. Um, but this is, this is Weaver's show, and... Uh... For her to get a Best Actress nomination for this is pretty astounding. I know the film got seven Oscar nominations overall, um, but I think this is the first real example of an out-and-out -out action film getting a Best Actress nomination. Um, but I, 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 the first half of it, it's quite a, a journey as well within the film. The first half, she's getting back into this mode of of space travel and she's just sort of this you know backseat advisor um but when they end up stranded she really does click into survival mode ripley and that's when weaver's performance really takes off for me like when she's like grabbing burke by the scruff of the neck and um she's like oh i will not take any of your shit hudson like it, it like it just really it just becomes a one-woman show the film really um 
I think if anybody asks me why should you watch Aliens, it's not for the visual effects, which are great. It's for Sigourney Weaver. She really, really is the film. And Ripley is really on a mission and totally believable. Um, she's just in the zone in this. Yeah, I think it's a, a fantastic and, and wholeheartedly deserved nomination. Um, and, and truly, I mean, it's it's kind of a miracle to me that this actually managed to get seven nominations because this, you know, James Cameron was not somebody who was taken very seriously at the time. Um, Sigourney Weaver, this was her first nomination. She hadn't been nominated previously. So it's not like this was like, I don't know, Meryl Streep or something, you know, leading this where it would be, you know, a pretty uh, easy call for a nomination. But, you know, Fox uh, did a great job campaigning this and it was a huge uh, box office hit. And it was really like, one of the sensations of that summer, you know, alongside Top Gun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that they just do a, it's so brilliantly designed, you know, all of the inner workings, um, you know, once they go inside, how the aliens have taken over, uh, the way it's all lit um, is fantastic. And, you know, they make the aliens, you know, awfully convincing and that that alien queen is, you know, a pretty daunting sight, you know, Audrey too, very daunting, Alien Queen, you know, 10 times more daunting. <laughs> and her, her big battle um, with Ripley is, of course, you know, so iconic and, and masterfully staged. And, you know, them going mano a mano and Ripley on the verge of potentially being sucked out into space. I mean, there's a lot of great suspense there. And Cameron just just nails it, you know. I think if there's one moment visually that doesn't actually work for me, is uh, the crashing of the dropship um, when they're trying to escape, you know, toward the middle of the film. Um, there's some some green screen work going on there where the crash is happening behind them that isn't very convincing, um, especially um, compared to you know all of the incredible alien work being done. But beyond that, you know, there really isn't a false note here. Yeah, and with the Alien Queen, I love how it's got these sort of parallel stories of two mothers um, with Sigourney um, and Newt's relationship, um, Ripley and Newt's relationship, sort of her feeling very maternal to, to this child um, and the bond that they've established versus this Alien Queen sort of determination to procreate no matter who she has to kill to do it um and then of course they had that showdown which you mentioned which is really really good and that um the get away from her you bitch line which is just like will go down in history really oh yeah i mean it's it's phenomenal and uh, all of the um the work with uh, lance hendrickson um as bishop and the way that the alien's tail just of course like splits him in two toward the end and just like white goop just splatters all over the place um i mean there's there's, there's so many different things that come to mind you have the face huggers too which are of course terrifying and that extended sequence where um ripley and newt are trapped in the room with the face hugger that's phenomenally staged um, I mean, there's so many great sequences in this. And I mean, it's just a film that almost pushes, I think, two and a half hours. And it just flies by completely. In terms of the visual effects, I think I read that the when they showed this to Fox, um, the executives at Fox were sort of like, 
where's the visual effects? You've spent everything on the on the uh, art direction. And I think Cameron had to tell them what you see isn't production design, it's effects. Um, so they were sort of deceived by that. Um, but I think I think the couple of things look a bit a bit naff now, like the lightning bolts and sort of things like that um, haven't stood the test of time very well. Mm. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's very impressive. And I love how it sort of builds this like industrial looking world, industrial looking space station aspect. It fits in very well with the tone of the film. And it's sort of very video gamey. Like you could easily imagine this being a video game. It's basically a first person shooter with Sigourney Weaver or at least the last act of the film is um and it, so it's it's really really impressive and it's really thematically the way that the film looks um is very consistent what's funny is that um the guy who designs the alien creature for the first alien H.R. Geiger um was actually unable to do this film because he was tied up and under contract for Poltergeist 2. <laughs> um, so I believe he was nominated for Poltergeist 2 instead. Uh, I can't imagine that he uh, looked back on that with very uh, much fondness. Especially not when he lost to them, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, actually, ever since Andrew mentioned it, I've been trying to picture Meryl Streep as Ripley. Um <laughs> And I'm not sure it would have worked. Um, but just to mention that in, in contrast to Poltergeist 2, uh, where the visual steps kind of effects didn't keep up, um, I was very much impressed by the jump in the uh, kind of ambition and the quality of the visual effects between the first and the second alien. Uh, so, also just, you know, the as we mentioned, the whole sequence with the queen and her and her eggs and everything is just, I mean, masterfully staged and masterfully kind of visualized. So definitely, um, spoiler alert, I think, earned its Oscars. Did anyone else feel a, an ounce of sympathy for the alien queen when her babies get new? Yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> these aliens, they're, they're just trying to be, you know? They're not, it's not their fault that, humans just decided to come and colonize them and try to fuck with them uh they're just they're just trying to exist and just because we regard them as murderous parasites they're just living you know so yeah it's it's kind of a downer yeah well the villain of this movie is not the alien queen or the aliens the villain of this movie is burke portrayed yeah. by paul riser who's actually gives a pretty terrific performance making this one of the most hateable characters that i can think of i mean he is just dreadful and i think that james cameron while writing this i think actually feels more empathy for the aliens than he does burke because he really crafts this character who is just the most despicable sight um he kind of reminds me of the character in um ghostbusters that sets all the uh ghosts free (laughs) like the health inspector guy or whatever yeah um you just cringe every time he's on screen um so yeah, Paul Reiser is work. Terrible. Yeah, especially when he turns the, the CCTV camera off. I was like... Oh. Yeah, was, <laughs> and then, then he, of course, cool. locks himself in. So they have to <laughs> take some forever to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cold. Although I do have to... I have to say, in defense of Walter Peck in Ghostbusters, 
Um, in in our world, in reality, we would want a little bit of government oversight on the Ghostbusters. I think um, <laughs> just the you know unlike he's right, unlicensed nuclear reactors in a pretty shady building with obviously no type of inspection. He, I obviously it turned out badly for him, but ninety nine times out of a hundred, he is the hero in that situation um <laughs> not in that one he got unlucky okay um so we've got some listener questions this week um first one is from marku yilpalo um and he says sigourney weaver famously got a best actress nomination for a genre film this year while it's a much weaker film do you think judy and beck r.i.p Deserved supporting actor consideration as the incredibly creepy villain, Reverend Kane in Poltergeist 2. I'd be fine with it. Um, you know, looking at the best supporting actor lineup that year, um, I actually honestly prefer him to uh, three or four out of them. Um, I, I definitely prefer him to Denholm Elliott. I'm not a huge Room with a View fan. Um, I prefer him to Dennis Hopper. I think he was up for the wrong film. Um, I think he should have been up for Blue Velvet and not Hoosiers. And then I'm honestly not a huge Platoon fan either. So for me, Beck is kind of only behind the winner, Michael Caine. Um, again, I think Beck is really terrifying. And I mean, he was never in the conversation for a Best Supporting Actor nomination, obviously. But I think it would have been a completely deserved nomination. I, I think I agree. Yeah. Um, my only real complaint about his performance is that he's not in more of the film. Um, he does an incredible amount and he's very creepy with very limited screen time. Um, but I would have preferred him to his, you know, fake monster version because uh, he's so much scarier. Uh, and I think if he had been able to do more of the film, obviously he was very ill uh, during the during the filming but if he could have been in more of it i would have uh i would have thought that would have really elevated the film he's also very scary in the, the flashback scenes where we see what he was doing with the community and basically duping them all into thinking that the end of the world was coming and then he would lock them in and mm -hmm. he's doing these sermons and he's really really terrifying but the sequence is edited in such a kind of spastic way that it kind of undercuts the work that he's doing so yeah. but yeah i agree i th he probably has like maybe 10 or 15 minutes of screen time in it and i think he does the most with that that he can but yeah i think it would have been a an awesome nomination i was gonna say i wouldn't have nominated him until you mentioned who the actual nominees were <laughs> and then i'm thinking <laughs> oh yeah right, he right. is better than that <laughs> um i think dennis hopper should have been nominated for blue Vel velvet and one to be honest yes but yeah, I, yeah, given the nominees, he wouldn't be out of place in that lineup. Definitely not. But I do think that Zelda deserved it more for the the eighty two Poltergeist uh, in supporting actress. Mm. Uh, Zeta Short asks, "How do you think that Brian Gibson's direction of Poltergeist two compares to his direction of What's Love Got to Do with It?" Uh, I'm going to have to bow out of this one because I have not seen What's Love Got to Do With It. So the the whole Brian Gibson thing is he directed um, the Josephine Baker story, which was a really acclaimed 
um, I believe it was a miniseries for HBO. And I think he won an Emmy for it. And I think that was what ultimately scored him the the task of directing what Slub got to do with it. So I think that's more his signature is doing these really um, comprehensive, polished, very well acted music biopics. That seems to be what he's like a master at. I don't think that he's all that comfortable in the horror space, at least not from Poltergeist 2. Um, I think that Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg had such a perfect collaboration on the first one, Toby bringing the intense horror and Spielberg bringing the, the adventurous side to it, the playfulness, um, being able to kind of sanitize Toby Hooper's grungy horror into something more family-friendly that's still pretty effective. I think Brian Gibson on this feels more like a director for hire. I don't think he seems to have much passion for the genre. I think it's very workmanlike. Um, that being said, I think that what's love got to do with it is incredible. I think that he captures fabulous performances. I think it does a great job covering Tina Turner's life. And I think he would have been a deserving nominee for that, honestly. Um, but you would never watch Poltergeist 2 and that and ever think it was the same director. No, not in any way, shape or form. Um, I think there's more to consider with Poltergeist um, from a directorial standpoint. I did appreciate that he gave it a different vibe to the original. Um, sort of it felt a bit more like sort of Sam Raimi, Wes Craven um, sort of filmmaking than, than Tob Hooper, which is not necessarily worse. I think it's just a bit different. Um, so I think it did have some individualist style about it, but I don't think that's why he was hired. I think he was hired director for hire, like you said. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, Toby Hooper after Poltergeist had a really not great career. Um, you know, had he not been under contract with this terrible studio, which was uh, Canon Films, which was just like notoriously bad 80s studio, I could almost have seen him coming back to Poltergeist 2, sans Spielberg, and maybe making it um, more of a grungy kind of Texas Chainsaw vibe, uh, more of like a an R, a hard R rating than this kind of PG, PG-13, still kind of family-friendly Poltergeist that um, ended up happening. Um, I, ultimately, I, I just don't think Brian Gibson had much enthusiasm for the genre, and it's just kind of going through the motions. Yeah. Uh, Daddio asks, do you believe in ghosts or aliens? And have any of you had any paranormal or extraterrestrial experiences? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I will say ghosts. No, I do not believe in any kind of spiritual realm or um, whatever uh, particular brand of ghosts or poltergeist or whatever you subscribe to um and i generally don't like ghost movies uh because i find it hard to suspend my disbelief so much that the ghost would just fuck around with people for so long instead of just killing them um like in poltergeist 2 with the chainsaw it's like ooh, wouldn't it be scary if i murdered you with this well just do it you know you have the chainsaw if you want the family dead kill them <laughs> aliens um aliens i do believe that we are not the only intelligent life in the universe i think that 
it's just a statistically negligible possibility. Um, I don't believe that aliens have ever come to Earth or have made successful contact with us, and I'll I'll talk about the Fermi paradox for hours on end and why it's uh, why it's not so paradoxical. But I do believe they're out there. I just don't believe that we have ever or possibly will ever uh, receive contact from other intelligent life. So my answer to the second part of the question is no. Um, I've not had any experiences that I would describe as paranormal or extraterrestrial. Yeah, I'm pretty much on on the same page. You know, I don't think that, you know, Dwight Eisenhower in the 50s had like a secret conference with aliens who came to visit us and like struck a deal to protect us um, from an alien invasion, which some people apparently do. <laughs> um, that being said, I have had, you know, experiences where I've dreamt about something and then like months later or you know sometime down the line something happens and i'm like you know holy shit i totally dreamed that this would happen way back when and it's usually something very minor like a conversation or seeing something um and i don't know what the hell you would describe that as but you know i have had experiences like that i wouldn't say that i'm like a psychic or have psychic visions uh, but I've definitely dreamt about things, minor things, that later came to fruition. So I don't know how what you would describe that as, but in terms of my personal experiences, you know, that's that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm also sort of a, a hard no on ghosts and a hard yes on aliens. Um I did see an apparition, like, whatever it was. I did see a figure of a person at night in my great aunt's house. Um, but I think that that is just a, some sort of thing of my mind being half asleep and sort of inventing this um, inventing this image. Um, but that's the only time that I would never... I, I do think the... I love ghost movies, actually, but I do think the idea of ghosts existing is absurd, to be honest. Uh, last question mm -hmm. comes from Gabriel Guarin, and he says, if there had been five nominees in this category, what do you think they would have been, the other two? Um, well, I'm not sure about two, but I definitely think that Labyrinth probably would have been one of them, um, which had a BAFTA nomination... Uh, because they did nominate five, I think, or at least four. Um, I think Labyrinth definitely would have been nominated. And sec uh, fifth nominee, maybe, if they're really going crazy, maybe Maximum Overdrive, um, which is another pretty niche, pretty low-regarded genre film, but with some fun visual effects that they might have uh, decided to award in a, hey, this was an enjoyable ride kind of way. See, I'm shocked that um, Star Trek IV, Voyage Home, wasn't nominated here. Um, I know it's not necessarily the most um, visual effects heavy of the series. In fact, it might be the least visual effects heavy, but it was nominated in several other categories. I feel like it would have just been kind of like an easy check, you know, as opposed to, you know, doing Poltergeist 2, which is kind of a, really is kind of still a shocking nomination to me. Um, I think that something like Short Circuit which is about a robot, um, could have been up there. Um, there's also, I mean, I guess that um, 
there's some visual effects in Top Gun. It's not really like you're, you know, the kind of visual effects that get recognized in this category. But given, you know, what a success that was, I could see some folks perhaps considering that. Um, but yeah, I think Star Trek is like the obvious snub here, especially since it was on voters' radar in a lot of other categories. Yeah, I was going to say Star Trek and Top Gun, although I haven't seen Top Gun. But there is, is there a case for a nomination in that category then? I mean, I certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have nominated it. But I mean, just given what a success it was and that it's just such a, an expensive looking film and that there's a lot of crazy stunts in it i could have seen it perhaps getting some votes um you know there's there's some other films that that i probably would have considered that definitely weren't on their radar there's like a lot of fun horror films from this year there's nightmare on elm street 2 uh, which has a lot of fun visual effects and then there's um some more sci-fi films there's um critters um, which is a lot of fun, and the remake of Invaders from Mars, which is actually a Toby Hooper film, um, has some fun visual effects too. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was some some other good horror in this. I don't know if it was necessarily on the radar, but yeah, I think that Star Trek is the obvious snub, and that Top Gun and maybe Short Circuit uh, may have gotten some votes too. And um, in the makeup category, you've got The Fly and Legend, um which I would think would also incorporate some level of visual effects, but maybe the makeup was most of the uh, the craft involved. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I could have seen The Fly perhaps being on the radar in visual effects too, but I think that, you know, the makeup was really the main focus there. Um, another one from that year is A Flight of the Navigator, which is another sci-fi film. Uh, it's a little bit more polished than some of these other, you know, more gory um, films. So I, I maybe could have seen that being in the conversation. But yeah, I mean, to to me, you know, I, I can I can honestly picture a, a more boring category where it's like Aliens, Star Trek, and Top Gun. That to me is like a more traditional Oscar trio, as opposed to you know Little Shop and poltergeist to two genre films that aren't necessarily the kind of things that voters would usually eat up, especially in that era. So, yeah. Okay, so now we come to this immortal question. Why did Aliens win this Oscar, and was it close? I don't think it was close at all. I imagine it, you know, easily received a majority of the votes. You know, given that it received seven nominations, was a substantially bigger hit than either Poltergeist 2 or, or Little Shop. Um, obviously, if Poltergeist 1 wasn't going to be winning visual effects, Poltergeist 2 <laughs> was not going to be winning visual effects. <laughs> um, granted, Poltergeist 1 did not have a prayer itself versus E.T. <laughs> but in a way, I think that Aliens kind of is like E.T. here. You know, I mean, it's the most embraced film from the Academy by far of this trio. Uh, I don't think that Little Shop received too many votes here. You know, I suspect it probably went Aliens, Little Shop, Poltergeist, ranking-wise. But I suspect it wasn't very close. You know, Aliens was clearly the most beloved film of this trio among voters. Agreed. Um, I don't see this being a, a nail-biter on the night. 
Uh, Aliens is obviously, yeah, the most beloved, the most accomplished, and just the best of the three films overall in just about every aspect. So, yeah, I can't imagine that anybody had any problem awarding it this Oscar. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, And it is the superior visual effects job. Um, So it does make sense. Um, wider observations on 1986. Um, we have Marty Matlin's historic win um, for a, a non-vocal performance in Children of a Lesser God. Uh, thoughts on that? Uh, I think she's fine. I don't particularly like Children of a Lesser God. I think Marley Matlin's a terrific actress. I loved her in other things, but uh, the film honestly doesn't do a whole lot for me. Uh, For me, that category is kind of a barn burner between uh, Sigourney and Kathleen Turner, who's uh, delightful, and Peggy Sue Got Married. I actually haven't seen Children of a Lesser God. I'm actually kind of um, bad on this year. (laughs) I've seen barely any of the nominees from this year. Um, So it's it's actually pretty embarrassing, but I haven't seen most of these. It's sad. We'll have to do... um... I'm trying to think what we can do if we could do best actor one time um but yeah. i think for best actress my vote's actually jane fonda um i thought she was like really really fun um and sort of like brought that film up um from the the depths of uh mediocrity to be actually okay um but yeah i thought matlin was was good um if not great um I was going to say, I, I like Jane Fonda too, but I think The Morning After is, is so aggressively mediocre that um, for me, I, I just, I can't quite get there. She'd probably be uh, fifth for me among that lineup, honestly. I just can't believe that's her last Oscar nom to date. It's crazy. 35 years. Any other wider observations on 86? Any... Well, I haven't seen The Color of Money, but people aren't generally thrilled with Paul Newman winning that, right? It's generally accepted as a, uh, hey, oops, we never gave Paul Newman an Oscar. Better better rectify that here. Yeah, I am not fond of The Color of Money. I actually think it's um, probably one of Martin Scorsese's worst films, and I don't think Newman's very good in it either. Um, for me, this year is honestly all about Hannah and her sisters. Um, by far my favorite film of the year. Uh, one of my favorite comedies of the decade, probably one of my favorite comedies of all time, honestly. Uh, for me, it would be a pretty easy sweep uh, for that in the categories it was up in. So I, of course, agree with uh, Michael Caine winning in Supporting Actor and, and Diane Weaston Supporting Actress. So, yeah, for me, mm-hmm. you know, that's my my top of the year. Uh, and as I, I mentioned, I'm not a huge uh, Platoon fan. I'm actually not a huge fan of this year in general. Uh, at the Oscars, but I, I do love Aliens, I do love Hand and Her Sisters and Little Shop, but, you know, again, Room with a View isn't really my cup of tea, The Mission is a snooze, Children of Lesser God is, is okay, um, but yeah, among that Best Picture lineup, it's really only Hand and Her Sisters that does a whole lot for me. Yeah. It's pretty sad that Blue Velvet got nearly shut out this year. Um, could it could have been nominated or won in so many categories outside of Best Director. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to get that one nomination. It's it's always fun when it's that that lone best director nomination and absolutely nothing else. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch has done that twice. He did it with Mulholland Drive as well. I think the only film that we haven't mentioned from '86 that I would single out is The Green Ray, the Eric Roma movie, and uh, which obviously didn't get any nominations. Um, but but that really is wonderful, and also. We have to mention Betty Davis's announcement of the Best Actor Award, which was just a car crash. Um, if anybody listening has not mm-hmm. seen this, watch it on YouTube because it's just hilarious. Um, she just gets everything wrong. They have to cut her microphone and then she spends the whole of a speech sort of um, talking about what Robert Wise has done when he's accepting the award on behalf of paul newman um so it's it's just legendary yeah this was also the uh, ceremony that was uh hosted by uh chevy chase goldie hahn and paul hogan so that iconic trio of oscar hosts <laughs> <laughs> okay um so shall we rank these nominees yes <laughs> sure so, again, I think in all of these cases, there's like a little quibble that I have with them. So, um, all that said, um, you know, Poltergeist 2 is going to have to be number three. Again, I think there's a lot of fun stuff. I love watching a boy get attacked by his braces. Um, but there's a, a lot of bad stuff in there, too. And then for me, it's actually it's a little bit close between one and two, but I do have to put Little Shop in second. Uh, I think that there's some iffy work. Uh, toward the end, but I think that all the puppetry with Audrey 2 is pretty phenomenal. And then number one would be Aliens, which is perfect besides some of that uh, green screen work. Um, but yeah, um, I, I enjoy this lineup. I think there's there's a lot to love, even in Poltergeist 2. And I think that they probably could have expanded this out to, to a five and still had a pretty solid lineup. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my ranking is the exact same. I think Little Shop of Horrors would have had a better chance of snagging my number one spot if, like I said earlier, the finale had been a bit better edited to cut out some of the sillier and um, just worse shots where the visual effects just kind of fall apart or are noticeably bad. Like I said, if it had just been the giant Audrey's destroying buildings and you didn't see their legs, for lack of a better word, at any point, um, and if they had better realized the Statue of Liberty takeover, maybe I would have given it the number one spot just for sheer enjoyment. But yeah, for me, it's Poltergeist 2 at the bottom, Little Shop in the middle, and then Aliens, number one. Yeah, I also have the same ranking. Um which is probably the order of how good the films are as well to me. Um, but yep. yeah, uh, yeah, no question, Aliens for me had the, the best effects. Um, so we have a website, it's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categorically.o. Please rate and review us on whichever app you listen to us on. We're going to be taking a, a month-long summer break um, to record some new content, but we will be back with a very special guest on our return. We've got Kevin Jacobson, um, who everyone will know from And The Runner Up Is. He's going to join us to discuss the best original song nominees of 1999. 
which were Save Me from Magnolia, Music of My Heart from Music in the Heart, Blame Canada from South Park Bigger, Longer and Uncut, When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2, and the winner You'll Be in My Heart from Tarzan. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Andrew. Oh, I had so much fun. Thank you for having me. Who would you vote for in that song lineup? Uh, I suspect I'd probably go with the the Toy Story 2 tune, but I, I do love the, the South Park song too. Um, I think it's it's a that's a fun lineup there. Yeah, we've got three animated films in this lineup. That's cool. Yes, and I, I can't wait to hear Kevin because Kevin is a fantastic podcaster. Um, so I, I might be doing some stuff um, Emmys wise over at Awards Watch uh, with that coming up. Um, you know, beyond that, I'll of course be on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Awards Connect. So, um, you know, feel free to give me a follow. I'm always tweeting about different Oscar stuff, you know, generally old vintage stuff. And then you can yeah, find me on my blog at the Awards Connection. Uh, I've been doing a, a little series each week where I'm putting together a compilation of uh, old for consideration ads. So I'm trying to, to kind of build something out where there's a resource for folks to uh, look back at old Oscar ads because that really isn't necessarily available right now online especially for older stuff so that's kind of a, a pet project of mine so again that's at the uh the awardsconnection.com thank you everyone for listening and for your listener questions and we'll be back with a new episode sometime in july see you then Some good advice. You better take it easy. Cause you're walking on the eye.